Welcome, everyone. This is All Your Data, Bui and Burns Take Five Weekly Podcast. This is where we take five topics of our choosing. We take five minutes apiece and we do it every Friday. That's right. And he's Jerry, first half of All Your Data, and he's a digital forensics expert. And he's actually acting as an expert this week, right? This this very week. That's right. Yeah, I just got out of court today um, in trial all week. And I actually don't testify until Thursday, but it's a big one. That's exciting. That's exciting. She's Cassie. She's a technology attorney. And I didn't get your unique uh, intro this week. What, what do you think it should be? I have a hard time thinking of unique intro, but... I have a dog named Zuzu that's part, she's watching me record this right now. So that's the other thing about me. That'll work. So, um, the, well, do you want to chit chat about Zuzu? Is that, I know you have more than one. Yeah, I have two dogs. Zuzu is, she's a Saluki and she's definitely a Velcro dog. So she's always by me. Um, our other dog is a Foxhound mix, Oliver, and he's, the lord of the manor he goes from room to room and he has scheduled time with everybody in this house so um he may pop up from time to time but zuzu's always like by my side after Did we dive into it yeah let's go let's go the first one's pretty exciting i've been yeah. all weekend long so why don't you I... did okay yeah so this is our joint uh take it's take number one it's about the murdoch trial so this is my take on this one and and, and you could chime in too it's the it's Paul Murdoch and his Snapchat video yep. coming back from the dead. Absolutely. To solve his own murder. That was just like, it's a digital forensics, like, you, I mean, that, it's like an actual forensic file. You know, we should probably make that a, a, a normal. Jerry, we need to have our own show called Forensic File, but it's digital forensics and not DNA yep. forensics. I even I even wrote about this on Twitter that, you know, you hear all the time a attorney saying, trial attorney saying, if there's no DNA, jur jurors won't prosecute. They want the DNA because they've heard it. They hear it all the time on all the shows. And yeah. now I think that's going to be digital forensics. And yeah, you can get away with anything these days without there's so much information on your phone and like you said, the Snapchat was so vital, but then they were also looking at, you know, how fast he was walking in a certain amount of time and how many steps per hour and what were you doing? Were you jogging? Were you on a treadmill? You know, it's, you can't get away with anything. And even not having a phone, I know Dan Regard said this at University of Florida, I completely agree with you, with him. If you, if your phone is just inexplicably off for two hours that were really important right. two hours. That's probably going to get latched onto pretty quickly by prosecutors. Oh my gosh. I get, I mean, it's every single headline trial now where digital forensics plays a part. And in this one, just so the listeners know, and it's such a sad story. I, we don't want to get like so excited about it because it's tragic, right? And it was brutal, you know? And so one of Alex Burdas' alibis was that he was never at the criminal, right? Where he was saying that all along, all the way leading up to the trial, he was never at the criminal, he was never at the kennel. Until the uh, defense found out that the prosecution went and subpoenaed a Snapchat video from Snapchat, right? And isn't Snapchat's video supposed to disappear, by the way? I thought they were supposed to 
be kind of ephemeral, but maybe they're less ephemeral than what we've been led to believe. So that was one thing I really latched on to is that they disappear in your phone, but they've got them on the servers. So they will, when law enforcement comes to calling, they will turn that over. So that's one thing I wanted to point out. But the second thing is that he, when he sent them the Snapchat video, it was just minutes before he got murdered by his own father. And uh, his voice, it wasn't, they didn't get a video up of the, the defendant here, but Alex Murdoch's voice was in the background. He was calling to his dogs and you can listen to it. It's really eerie that he sounds so familiar and so calm just minutes before he murdered his son, Paul, and, and his wife. It's totally tragic, but when he, you know, when that video was making, it confirmed his, it confirmed his presence at the murder site, even though he denied it. And so that's why he ultimately had to take the stand. Right. And I think the point you make, we get excited, not because we're, you know, a lot of it for me, I, I've always been very interested in true crime. And for me, it's like, how do they solve the case? You know, even, even as a teenager watching, you know, City Confidential or the original Forensic Files, it's how, like, how did that save that case gets solved. And I found it interesting that that was a piece of evidence, a recorded voice, and he took the stand, yeah. you know? So the jurors were able to hear his voice yeah. talking and they, you know, usually, and this happened in court where there were people authenticating saying, is that voice Alex Murdoch? You know, people were saying that, but then the juror, couldn't make that determination themselves because they heard him talking, not a recording of him compared That's to the recording. It's him compared to a recording. And I'm I'm just really baffled by it. I mean, right. these these guys are great trial, they're great litigators. So it's not like they yeah. had it before. And I, you know, I was reading articles and them saying it was the Snapchat. That's that was the thing that did it for that them. That was the thing because there was no hard evidence. Everything no. was circumstantial, but that was that actually placed him at the scene of the crime. I think we're going to go here for a second. Let me take it there. Yeah. What if he didn't take the stand and his defense was, that's a deep make? I mean, I think that that would have been a valid, there would have had to have been like experts on trial validating, yeah. right? Then it, then it right. the validity of the evidence. And, and, you know, maybe that would have muddied the water enough or distracted enough for the defense, you know? Right. It's it's all incredible. It didn't come up in that one, but it will start coming up. Absolutely. Uh, and when it does, you and I will be there to talk about it. Every time we will be there. So right. should we move on to our next Let's one? move on. Take two, that's yours. Take two. So this one is Avril 15. And you know me, Jerry, I kind of like NFTs. I'm very, a lot of it is professional curiosity because, you know, for me to really understand how NFTs work, and part of this was just me learning how blockchain works, I wanted to go buy some NFTs, right? So we talked about ordinals last week, and ordinals are kind of the Bitcoin version of right. NFTs. Right now, NFTs are something that were created based off of the Ethereum blockchain um, because of additional functionality that that's part of that blockchain. And, and this was one of the first NFT projects that I bought. And most of the projects that I bought from, I've, I've participated in by buying an NFT. They're women founded, you know, really about communities. They're trying to get more women in Web3 and involved in NFT projects or you know, is supporting women artists specifically or, or whatever. But this one really emotionally hooked me because it's a series of 10 seasons 
with specific characters that have been created. Avril 15, that's like the main character. And it's fairly limited run. You know, it's similar in that it's generative AI kind of, but each each of the profile photo NFTs are all hand-drawn originally by Illustrator and and then digitally remixed a little bit, you know, after it's scanned. And like the real focus on community, like I think that they're, you know, going back to kind of the cultish conversation we had in our first episode, you know, I think some of that is just, you know, oh, community is really important to Web3. The proof can kind of be in the pudding, right? People can say that, but how much is it really, you know, harking back to maybe some of like the aughts tech startups that were like family, but then people can kind of take advantage of that, right? What I like so much about Avril 15 are a couple of things. One, it's run by two guys in their free time. They're they're hustling, they're working hard, they're illustrators and a friend, and they're not doing this for like a rug pull or anything. They're also like total Gen X vibes. When I saw the artwork, it made me- It looks great. It made it's me- Totally you. Yeah. yeah, it made me think so much. Of, uh, my husband and I will be yes. here this year. And it made me think of us being in the late 90s, really into still into Radiohead, but like that Radiohead vibe. I remember going to Ghost in the Shell, seeing Ghost in the Shell in the movie theater, you know, and there were so many independent movies and independent graphic novels. You know, you had Max, you had Madman, you had Bone. Oh my gosh, Bone's a great one. All of these great IPs out there, new IPs, much less the movies that we're just really not seeing now, you know? And, and like for me, Projects like this are in an in a age where so many studios, I think, are risk averse because they have huge shareholders to answer to. They're not really taking risks on new IP, like new content. But I see the NFT space as a place where that could really happen and a lot of creativity can come. So why is it because NFTs is really made for artists who want to own their artwork? improve and really get compensated for it and get royalties. I mean, right. probably with the rise of generative AI, the really the, you know, the last smallest or last refuge for real artists that drop by hand and, you know, create their own work. And what I really like about this group is that they, they built up a pretty strong following on Twitter and they dedicate every Sunday to highlighting artists with under 2000 followers on Twitter. So they, they picked five followers and then they, they started curating small artists um, to highlight and be sold in like a specially curated set on Foundation, which is a secondary market that they've moved towards. They were originally primarily on o OpenSea, but they moved to Foundation because OpenSea, okay. you know, there were some discussions about royalties. And for them, they took a really hard stance. Uh, we were going to move to Foundation because of uh, the discussion or discourse around um, royalties. But... I think it, for me, it's, it's, it's kind of like a beacon of hope. It's not just like a cash grab or anything. They've been very vocal, um, the founders about, we're not in this to make money. We're in this to support artists and it's for art for art's sake, which I feel very strongly about, you know, it's, um, to yeah. me, art is more than just like, how much money can I get out of it? It's, it's the emotion that comes from it, all, all that stuff, you know, and, um, and they have very limit, like you're, you're, your NFTs that you buy build on top of each other. Like if you have a series one or season one and a season two, then you're guaranteed season three, but you can't like suck up all of them and get all of the, like they don't want someone to to ha hold all of them. So right. it's just a very um, 
encouraging space, you know, to be so around. Where can our listeners go find that project? So they just go to foundation.io or? I would actually, I would go to Twitter and they're very active on Twitter. Oh, go ahead. Pull that up. I love how you advocate for all this stuff. You think deeply about the takes that you're going to do every week of our podcast. And I like to be humanitarian side of, of what you're. Yeah. I mean, you know, is it, what are we in this world without art, without music and things like that? And it's very easy to look around away from that um, and kind of ignore that. But, yeah, and it's, it's not to make money from, it's really what emotion does that art evoke? And that art, whenever I saw it, it evoked very strong, nostalgic emotions for me. And it just gives me like a very, you know, warm and fuzzy place. And whenever I bought the NFTs I bought, it was really from a, you know, this reminds me of my husband and I when we first started dating over 20 years ago, started dating 25 years before we we got married. So the artist is Tim McDonough and he's based in England. I believe he's in Bristol and he's, he does illustrations in his, his full-time job and this is his extra thing. And then his assistant is Nathan. Nathan, I don't remember his last name. And then there's also a dog in the mix. His name is Pete and he's very cute, but it's a really great community. And, you know, I know a lot of, uh, there are good projects out there. If you find it, don't just, don't just chase the hype, you know, don't go out there and chase the hype. Really, you know, go out there and see what opportunities there are. Cause there are some good ones. They're not all bad. All bad. Yeah, they're all bad. Should we okay. jump to take three? Yeah, let's go three. Your turn. Okay. Take three. My turn. Slappa. So Slappa, this is brand new. Okay. Okay. So AI is moving so quickly. Slappa stands for self-learning agent performing API. Self-learning okay. agent performing APIs. Now we already know that generative AI, like ChatGPT, knows how to code, right? Right. Right. code for you. Right. So a lot of these applications try to leverage each other. Why do we create the wheel if there's another service out there, a web service or another API that you could draw from and incorporate it into your own app. And so you can plug into as many APIs as you want. What this self-learning agent does, it is when it can't figure out a solution to your request, it'll scan the internet for API documentation for the functionality that it needs and automatically connect into it with code. This is like mind blowing. So now you can, it's going to get to the point because that's the one sticking point originally is like, you've got to code, you got to create your own code interface with these other applications, right? It will figure it out. It knows when it needs a solution that it can't solve on its own. And it knows that the, the shortcut to that is to go find an API. And so we'll scan the internet for it. It's like, what? So really it's going to get to the point where if you need software, to solve a very particular solution, you can ask a chatbot to do it and it will do it not just on its own, but through the help of another application or web service that's available out there on the internet. And it'll just run out there behind the scenes so you don't know if it knows how to do it or if it's out there pulling it from no, a separate API. It's totally seamless. It's all in the background. Wow. But that's a brand new thing that someone invented. Um, it's called Slappa, so keep an eye out for it. 
So I had a question on that. Now, yeah. you and I both know technology can be very powerful, but it's also not a magic wand and it is not perfect. You know, I know Aaron talked right. about, our friend Aaron talked about automation bias, which I definitely know it exists. And, you know, we deal with the raw data and we know how imperfect things like automation and, and totally. data is. Totally. So what, I mean, couldn't this kind of just be creating chaos out there because we, it's, it's running seamlessly. We assume that it's doing the right thing. And we assume it's finding API that appropriately aligns with our ask. And then what if it just kind of like spools and get like, gets like more further and further from our truth, but we assume that it's yeah. running as it should, because it's like intelligent. Well, that's why I think there's always going to be a man in the loop. There's going to be some level of curation, right? You can imagine like a top 10 list of APIs for whatever function. And then that, um, and then the uh, self-learning agent will refer to that potentially, right? There's got to be some kind of checks and balances in there. Or you're right, because not all APIs are high-quality APIs. In fact, you can think about the dark side of that, is you can throw an API out there that does nothing but plant actual malware. That's what I was about to ask about, like ransomware. How does it, how does it not hook on to weaponized APIs out there? So it remains to be seen. Yeah, there's always that dark side. And it's a side that you and I tend to explore for litigation and computer forensics because it's not all rosy up there. No, no, it's definitely not perfect. And, and I feel like there's a little bit of like extremes where there's a lot of fear mongering when it comes to technology. And then there's a lot of hyper, hyper, you know, cult issues. It's so perfect. It's, uh, yeah. it, it's idealized, you know, and even like, mm -hmm. like Bitcoin technology without getting too fancy is very idealized of like, or, or blockchain, you know, it's decentralized and stateless or whatever. You can think these things, but there, you know, where DAO is stateless or whatever, you can think that, but that doesn't mean a regulator won't roll in and try to like bring a suit against people who have tokens that voted on things. So right. like, I think there's like this, you know, rose colored glasses approach to things. And, you know, then reality kind of stomps through like Godzilla. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah. That, that's, I think that's the reality is that, you know, you're trying to skirt all of these regulatory agencies. I mean, that's the concept is that it's, it's like anarchy, but anarchy for good, you know, you can twist it and anyone can take it down a dark road anarchy for bad. I like, look at all the people who got cheated out of the money, all based on blockchain and the belief in cryptocurrency projects. Right. Right. And so many, you know, NFT projects on the bad side of there have been a ton of rug pulls where. People just pump it up. Founders get the money in the first sell and the, in the mint, and then they piece out. The Mind Budget Connection is um, a group of people within our profession. I know a couple off the top of my head, Amy Sellers, Chad Riley, got together and said, you know what? Our profession, e-discovery, you know, whether you're an attorney, a legal tech person, a, a forensics person, it's very demanding. And I know people may not believe that we work really demanding jobs because we're pretty active on social media. We're doing this. We're just, we just are, we have a high output for the amount of hours, you know, each one of our hours, probably someone else is like two or three, right? It keeps, it keeps us from going crazy. It's an outlet, really. Right. It's, a, it's an outlet. And and I think that, that there's this, that there's so much complexity to the work we do, especially as time has gone on and data has gotten more complicated. Um, you know, I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, e-discovery was not seen as that sophisticated. It, it was just kind of like you, you've scanned paper and you're organizing 
electronic versions of paper, but it is so much different from that now. And the level of nuanced knowledge that you need to have, you can't just like pass the baton off woefully, you know, without forethought and sufficient training. Like there's so much that comes in. I know when I worked at a service provider, we were, I would hire people without any e-discovery tech experience because I felt it's really important to do that. And, and that's a long learning cycle. That's easily six to nine months learning cycle, easily for basic stuff, not even super complicated stuff. And, you know, the dialogue that they're presenting to the group is we are, we are a profession and we work really hard. So what can we do to minimize burnout? So they've done, you know, mm-hmm. the effort to have a survey for people to fill out. You know, I think a lot of these conversations have come up with with COVID. And I also think a generational shift with with Gen Z coming in sure. and having a different attitude. And, and we're both Gen Xers. We talk about it, you know, probably every episode. And I know I'm a workaholic and I'm, we're both workaholics, but it's also not a healthy thing. You know, I mean, like I acknowledge that I, I have a hard time pulling out and pulling out of like the hyper-focus that sometimes come with the type of work that we do. And I know for me personally, last year I had to sit for the Texas bar. And so I was working, you know, 10, 12 hour days. And then I would roll right into studying for the Texas bar and I would study another, you know, four or five. And I did that every, every day. And I think I just got into that gear and I could never let myself like get out of it. And it's, it's a hard thing. And I find myself even feeling guilty when I start pulling back. So yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts on that, Jerry. You know, how, what you I, I tweeted something like this the other day. And I was like, is it a bit unhealthy when you realize that um, while on vacation or relaxing, that you're actually not enjoying it and that your really your enjoyment is from getting things accomplished at work? I think part of it is because, yeah, the, the work, workaholic part of it, and I think we're also invested in the uh, meaning of the work that we do. I think what we do is really consequential. Um, and so, you know, I think we get, um, you know, we feed off that. That's what gives us enjoyment. I, I love, like, knocking out tasks and getting them out of the way. It's a huge sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. And it's just like, you're going to make me sit next to a pool all day long, and I have to read a book. Like, I don't have, yeah. I don't tension for that anymore. As, I was, as much as I love reading, because I was a poli-sci English major in, in university, I just cannot get my head and attention focused long enough to read just an entire chapter nonstop. I always have to turn on my phone. Like, how do you do? Because I know you love reading. You turn off your phone or put it, like, in the other I, I try, I actually, this, over, hol- over the holidays, I tried to read and I've, I've just switched to physical books again. You know, I, 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 I've been, you know, I've read forever. Like I was besties with the librarians growing up at the public libraries. So I kind of grudgingly switched to Kindle, but some, you know, I did because it's so convenient, especially if you're traveling and stuff and you read a lot of books in like one trip, I could read three books. Right. So uh, oh, wow. But now that I'm home, I'm I I felt like I like that digital break of a physical book, I, and I'm finding now that works. You know, we're out of the holiday groove. I'm finding a hard time getting back to reading, and I I, I was really enjoying getting back into that. So, yeah. it, I feel like I'm always like, well, let me just be working on my laptop, and maybe at night I'll watch a little bit of TV, but I'll still work. And, and it's 
I, I struggle finding the balance and I, I realize it's, it's something I enjoy doing, but it's also, you know, it's not great for my husband, for me to be going things like that. So, um, it's a challenge and it's honestly, you know, something that I admire the dialogue from Gen Z and seeing them talk about it, you know, to me, it's a very refreshing, it's, it's not. It's something I appreciate, you know, because it definitely makes me stop and pause and go, you know what? There is more. There is more. Life is short. Life is short. You know, make sure. And I try to. I try to take time to, you know, travel with with Damon. You know, go on trips with my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Like go and have dinner with my girlfriends regularly. I try to like, go to the symphony. Go to the symphony. Absolutely, absolutely. So I try to do that. I just. I wish I was a little bit better about doing it on a more, you know, sustained basis. But anyway, I think it's important dialogue for our profession because burnout is a real thing. So totally, but well, enough of that. I mean, it's a very important topic, but we do have to move on. So Jerry, take five is all yours. Take five is more AI. Um, and it's actually more mind blowing. And so there was an experiment recently, actually it's a long-term experiment and it didn't really get traction until AI got involved. Uh, or AI was introduced into the mix. So these scientists are doing MRI scans of, of people's brains. Okay. And they're mapping the brain activity to an image that's being shown to the subject. The, they take one subject and they show her a, a series of pictures. And they, and at, at, in response to each of those pictures, they look at the brain activity. Okay. Right? And so they're mapping the pattern of the brain activity to the picture they're seeing. What is, and you know, how do you do that at scale? You introduce AI. AI is the perfect pattern detection tool, right? You could draw a ton of data on it. And then rather than try to give it the rules, like you might try to, you know, the human might try to get in there and try to figure out the patterns. No, don't do that. Take all of the brain scan patterns for a particular picture and then dump all that data to AI and see, and let AI detect the similarities in patterns. So when it switches from a teddy bear to a lighthouse, to an airplane, it knows out of all of the subject data that, that you've collected, what is associated with each picture such that when, um, when AI is detecting a new batch, right? This is like the dense batch, right? You have like the control batch or the, when you do statistical modeling, you always have, you break things into two data chunks. The first data, it's just like in, in discovery, right? right. You, you train yes. Yeah, so training data mm-hmm. and then you test them. And so what we, what they found was that as it's monitoring brain scan activity, it doesn't know what picture is coming up, but it'll show the picture to the subject, like a teddy bear picture and AI will generate the picture of the teddy bear. To show them that it understands the brain pattern, it shows a picture to a subject of a, to a picture of the subject of a lighthouse. It generates a lighthouse picture, confirming that, and it doesn't know what picture you're showing the subject, just based on the its training data. And it's not perfect though, by the way. It's it, it's not the exact same teddy bear, but it knows it's a teddy bear. So if you watch the results of this, it is just you just like we're gonna die. The AI is absolutely going to kill us. Like Cylons, you know, like, well, it's time to rewatch. Oh, I mean, 
it's just like, isn't that crazy? But it makes sense though, if you think about it, right? I mean, I don't, I, you know what though, Jerry, like, why don't they know how to fix migraines? This is what I want to know. You know, my, like the break is still a mystery. So maybe it, yes. looking at silver lining, like maybe somehow that kind of a technology that like doctors don't really know really what causes migraine. It is like a big question mark. You know, so many people suffer from it. It's all in your, you know. There's, and there's you know? just infinite use cases that right. it just hasn't gotten around to that yet. But I like, for example, cancerous moles, right? So they, they oh, put yeah. out of this data and AI was able to predict based on the shape of the mole, any specific mole, actually it highlights it. It puts squares around the mole that they predicts is cancerous. There was a problem with it though, because it was going like, it went totally off the rails because the data set that they fed to it, the temps data was all from a single hospital where the, where the logo of the hospital in the top right of the x-ray, or not the x-ray of the photograph was, it started incorporating that into its pattern detection. So that when it didn't use photos from that hospital, the, they were getting a lot of like in, incorrect or false positive results or false negative results. So, you know, you have to be careful about your training data because it doesn't know how to like distinguish those things or, you know, then that's where the human in the loop really, you really need. Um, because once you realize that was uh, bad training data, you can kind of instruct it to ignore the top right where the logo is usually at for these, you know, these photos of moles on people's bodies. I mean, you know, it's really amazing what can be done, but it always has to be tempered with the the realization that it's not, it's not perfect. It's you not know, perfect. even it's not really thinking, you know, it, again, referencing back to our friend, Aaron, he posted a really interesting article today on LinkedIn where, you know, this, this one linguist, I can't remember, I think her last name is Bender. She talks about people can't, like, we're trying to humanize the AI, but we have to remember the AI at the end of the day is not a human. Like, it's mm -hmm. it, it, everything it's doing is based off of the algorithm, the training set, and right. what it's testing, right? At the end of the day, you know, it's like the, the Sydney thing that we talked about in the first episode. But it's getting, it's, there's so much money being poured into it. It's just Absolutely. like the, the crypto hype where you're not getting a time to do really, you know, get to and check for dangerous things around the corner. I mean, there might be too much of a rush to push this stuff out without under, fully understanding all the consequences. I think, you know, there needs to be some responsibility. If there's anything that we learned from crypto, it's we need regulatory oversight, right? And sometimes this technology pushes out too quick that the laws and the regulation doesn't catch up to protect consumers at the end of the day. And you can imagine consumers can be severely because what, what if it says you have uh, a cancerous mole, right? And you go to get treated for that. That's a lot. That's a huge mistake to make. Oh yeah. I mean, to get mm -hmm. misdiagnosed for something, some serious health issue that you don't actually have. Yeah. We're not overhyping it and we're not, you know, saying it's out going to take all of our jobs. So, um, it's just important, you know, to say. Stay on top of what's happening and it just might be flash in the pan, but, um, but some yeah. this is going to stick. There's just too much, uh, building going on around the AI space. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll just bring the news as it comes up. Um, I tend to get excited about it. So you're always the good getting to my gang. You kind of temper the, temper the news. Well, keep a little head about it. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, that it's, I get excited about stuff too. So we, we tend to balance each other out, which is, you know, it's, we get excited about different things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's good. I, I do think, so going back to the AI mind reader, mm-hmm. how, I mean, have they tested it across like different people from different cultural backgrounds or regions or ages? I would imagine like that absolutely needs to happen to, to, to eliminate bias or to you know, minimize bias. Yeah, we tend to, I mean, I tend to talk about that a lot and we'll see how long that lasts. And what, you know, we'll see if there's another fad that comes along, we'll talk about it and weigh the pros and cons. Absolutely, as always. So that's a wrap, folks. We hit all five of our topics, maybe a little bit over 30, but we'll make it work for our podcast. Thanks for t- tuning in, and we hope you join B&B Take 5 in our next episode. All right. Oh, what's the show you do about all your data? Then? Really? Okay. Until next time, keep laughing, keep learning, and keep thinking about all your data. Bye, folks. Bye.